Season 3, Episode 8 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This week we'll be chatting all about bird photography with sought-after specialist photographic guide Andrew Avely. In the episode, Andrew shares about how listeners can improve their bird photography regardless of the equipment that they have. He also chats about developments in photographic equipment and lets us know how it helps photographers in the field. We discuss software that is available for developing photos. Yes, there is more available than only Lightroom and Photoshop, and some of it is available for free. This episode is packed with lots of fantastic information. Please take some time to visit our online store on our website. We sell optics, books, art, and more, all to help you as a birder. If you need further assistance about products or anything else around the birding life, drop us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com and we will get back to you. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So Andrew, I want to welcome you to the show. We've been chatting for quite a while about getting you on and it's great to get to chat to you finally. Yeah, thanks very much. It's uh, really cool to finally do a podcast. It's uh, I must say it's the first one I've done. Uh, all the others have been video and online, so I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to be chatting all about photography, and as I've been going through your stuff, I love the fact that you're a person that you love to impart knowledge and help photographers, and it's going to be exciting tonight, and those, you know, obviously, especially for bird photographers, stay tuned because it's going to be a fantastic episode tonight. But before we get into the photography side of things, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, look, um, I've lived most of my life uh, at the coast in Neisner, and um, yeah, due to lockdown and some other factors, we took our sort of retirement plan and uh, sold up everything and moved to the Lowfelt, so I'm based down White River, and um, yeah, completely life-changing for the last six years. I've been trying to sort of find my niche in the photo guiding uh, industry. I am a professional photographer. I have the registration credentials just you know, from an industry standpoint, and then also some guiding and tourism qualifications and sort of put it all together. And yeah, it's been slow going, but, you know, um, as you mentioned, my passion is teaching and sort of come full circle again to that. So for our overseas listeners, I'm a little bit jealous of where you stay. You stay right near the Kruger National Park. How flipping awesome is that? Yeah, look, I didn't realize it was called the gateway to Kruger until uh, recently. So um, yeah, uh, if you have an idea where Skakuze is. I'm 45 minutes to the Fabeni Gate, uh, and I am an hour and 10 minutes to the Skakuze, oh, sorry, the Paul Kruger Gate, which is 25 minutes from Skakuze. So, yeah, I'm right sort of on the southern flank. 
So as we've been preparing for this episode, we've been talking a little about your photographic journey and can you tell us a little about that journey and how you ended up eventually starting to photograph birds? Yeah, I've been sort of um, into photography sort of when I grew up. I had uh, some of these Kodaks and Vivitar little film cameras and then, you know, one thing leads to another and then you're a teenager and then you sort of uh, grow up a little bit. In my case, I went to the Defence Force and then started a business. So I, I lost touch with the photography and, um, you know, then digital came and in my business at the time I had a little camera which I used to do pictures of installations and, you know, there it was a two megabyte camera and that was ginormous. That was the bee's knees to have that in the early 2000s. So, yeah, about 2005. I sort of, or 2003, people are going to laugh, but I'd never, ever been to the bush in my entire life living by the coast. And on a one-year wedding anniversary, my wife dragged me to Pilansburg, and that was in 2001, and that's where everything went downhill from there. So, uh, yeah, I um, started getting into a little photography a bit more seriously from, from 2003, 4, and 5, visits to the Kruger and then I did a lot of international photography, world uh, ASP, world surfing, um, uh, world superbikes when they were in South Africa, uh, sevens rugby. I did just basically everything that moved, I photographed it from, a, well, except weddings and macro. Those two things I don't do because I enjoy cars, they backfire, brides back chat. So I don't do bride and wedding photography. <laughs> um, yeah, and then my passion just erupted for wildlife and I've sort of put in the last 12 years, I've put all my effort into photographing wildlife. And, you know, birding has become part of that. And then obviously, there were skills in that that you learned through photographing motorbikes and other things that you got to photograph. How did those skills actually help you as a bird photographer and as even as a wildlife photographer? Uh, the diversity of skills with photography, especially when you're photographing a moving subject, whether it be an athlete, a rugby player, a motor car, a surfer, the dynamics are very much the same. And um, being able to adapt it to wildlife photography and now in the last sort of four years, uh, bird photography, it helped me a hell of a lot. When I was preparing for photographic safaris, my friends used to laugh at me. I used to trundle down from my house and stand next to the N2 and I used to practice panning. I just used to stand there for two, three hours and pan and pan and pan just to get the mindset into preparing before I'd go on a wildlife trip with guests or if I was going somewhere to do something. So you just, you get a bit of muscle memory, which helps as you get more advanced with your photography. And I think, you know, having a diverse idea of different photographic skills has made a difference for me uh, in, I wouldn't say being very successful, but making, I think, the, how do you say it, the sort of trance or the um, progression from uh, happy snapper to more advanced with birding and birds in flight and so on. So you touched on a little bit there, but you we spoke about how when we were, again as we were preparing how you you shared how you had moved from being a photographer that took photos of birds on sticks to starting to get a lot more creative shots. Talk us through that journey. Yeah, look, I always used to uh, when when I did the the sport and stuff, you'd always. The golden rule is you need to learn your subject. So if you were photographing the sevens rugby, you'd have a look at the players at the time, who the ones are going to make the break, who the ones going to take the ball into the into the loose mall or surfing. You learn who does what, what type of move. So with birds on a stick, they, you didn't need to really think. You need to, to have a bit of patience and you wait and you wait for the bird to turn or you have a look 
at the light so you can reposition. And sort of as as I started enjoying it a little bit more, it became more challenging. And then you do a little bit of research. So I would one of my sort of most enjoyable trips when I started out was was twenty fourteen or twenty twelve. I can't remember, but I went to Giants Castle in the Berg for the first time. And I'd spent sort of a week just reading about um, the bearded vulture, the Lamahaya, and trying to understand as much as I could. And when I arrived there, uh, up until today, I, stand, I still don't believe they land because I've never seen a, a bearded vulture land at Giant's Castle. <laughs> so the knowledge that you get on your subject, sort of as I've learned, um, I've started reading more about birds, bee eaters, for example. Theoretically, if they take off, they stand a higher chance of coming back to the same perch if they're feeding uh, or they're hawking in an area around the subject. They'll always come back and then go again. So it's such little things that sort of have started me looking at different aspects. I mentioned hawking. Last year was the first time I actually documented uh, a calm mind bee eater hawking, which I'm sure most birders know is when a, a bird will move around a subject like this was uh, ground hornbills feeding in long grass and chasing up the bugs. They would come down and they would feed up above the hornbills. So I looked at something different there. It's just a picture of a bird frozen in the sky. But when you look at the context, you see three hornbills. And if you zoom in, you can see the little bugs and the little things being shaken up. So that's sort of the more interesting side of the bird photography for me is, is behavior and different things. So you're trying to add birds and environment or I, I just, you know, at the time, if I see something and it feels right, I'll, I'll grab a shot. You spoke about that then. It's quite interesting because, you know, when we've had the chats, uh, I think you would probably describe yourself more as a bird photographer than the traditional birder who goes and pictures birds and that type thing. But, you know, we've had birders on the show and we've spoken about the importance of learning your subject. And you've, you've touched on that again about the importance of even for for bird photographers, getting a field guide, watching videos, and as much as you can, learning and understanding the subjects. And from what you're saying there, the more, the better you understand birds in, in, in the long run, if you understand your equipment and you put those two together, you're going you're gonna to start to get better photos. Yeah, you're increasing your odds. I mean, you've got to, you, you, you know, um, guys that, um, like for argument's sake, come to the Kruger or they go birding at Zarkel's Drift, which for me was a mind-altering experience a few weeks ago. I'd never been there. Uh, I, if I wasn't into birding, I would never have got to see it. It's an absolutely incredible place. So I had no idea where I was going. I knew there was birds, it was a waders, and you had a few different this and that, but, you know, with the floods in, in, in Gauteng and so much rain, it turned into be a lagoon, so we had to adapt quickly. So I didn't have enough information, but since then I've read about the birds that occur in that area. I now know what the vegetation looks like, what I could expect to see in specific places. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, a bit of a, an exciting journey to, to learn more. I mean, being fortunate to be on the Kruger, um, you know, regularly, I now have a fair idea when you go through the certain areas that I do regularly go, for argument's sake, the S1 from Fabeni to Skakuza. Um, there's four or five different sort of vegetations, areas, rock types, that type of stuff, which through my, my course that I've had to do to actually work in the Kruger as a guide, uh, as, a, as an independent guide, you have to do a four-day course and they teach you about the history of the park and the geography and the plants and sort of just to give you sort of a wide base of knowledge just with that from last year february i've managed to find different habitats expect what birds i could find and it's been it's been really enjoyable you know for me to 
to, to learn and increase my odds. You know, if you go into social media nowadays, you're going to get thousands of photos. I mean, you spoke about bee eaters, for example. I mean, I got a picture of a little bee eater the other day. But if you go and look for bee eaters or <laughs> um, we're talking about the one, the bird that's probably the most photographed, photographed bird in South Africa, the Malachite Kingfisher. There's, there's tons of photos on, on Instagram and a lot of them are very much the same kind of photo. But here, here's the big question. What, in your opinion, do you think makes a good bird photograph? Look, I'm going to give you a personal point of view because for me, my photography and what I try and teach is about your own expectations and how you connect with your image. I'll give you an example before I answer the question. You play golf. You hit a great shot. You hit it down the fairway. You hit it 400 yards. You feel like you won the lotto. You know, I take a good photo of even a dung beetle. It, to me, it's a great photo. It might not be what you see on social media, but again, you know, social media is a little bit skewed when it comes to actual reality of photography. And um, for me, even I, I, I took a photo the other day, you mentioned the Malachite Kingfisher. Uh, was on the low water bridge just north of Skakuza. Um, was using um, one of um, my new lenses. It's a Canon RF 800 F11. Anybody who knows about photography, F11, uh, it's pretty closed aperture, so shutter speeds are going to be low. It was overcast. So I really pushed the technicals hard. And the bird took off. The bird's head is pin sharp. The rest of the bird looks like a smudge. For me, that's a brilliant photo. I've got lots of sharp photos of malachites that sit dead still for an hour and don't move. And this was a brief second. For me, it's one of my nicer photos. People will say, oh, but the wing's not sharp, the wing position's wrong, or it's up, it's sideways. It's, but I love the photo. Um, you know, so from, from that point of view, my belief is you need to be passionate about what you shoot. And I know everybody will say, take photos for you, unless you're a professional or you're writing for a blog or a magazine and you have to go and get that mind-blowing shot with beautiful light and you've got to spend eight hours to take one photo. But, you know, you could sit for five days and you might not get that photo. So for me, any photo that I take that I feel is better than the last one or I'm extremely happy with at the time, for me, is a, is, is a good photo. So you've spoken about that social media challenge, but how do you, how do you as a photographer nowadays break free of the, the voice of social media and find your own voice as a photographer? Yeah, that, that is the challenge. That, that what separates the men from the boys, you know, to, to use a catchphrase. I used to judge myself extremely harshly on social media. You know, it's, uh, I think we all go through this phase. Me, I, I, I just you know, was comparing myself to Johnny and James and whatever, and they got 12,000 likes on their photo I get 10. And, you know, if I go and I look at it from a technical point of view, their photos are great, but mine's perfect. If you look at the color and the editing, theirs is like, wow, um, mine is how I saw it. I mean, that's what editing is about, your interpretation of the image and um, what it was there. So uh, eventually, it still does get to me every now and again. But, um, you know, I sent you a picture the other day of the Lesser Jacana, which I got at Leopon in the Kruger last weekend. It was. Half past 12, it was 40 degrees. I had to sit there and sweat and sweat and because it was the fourth time and I wasn't leaving there until I found the little buggers. So, um, you know, I've got a really nice photo for me. It shows an environment. It shows a nice little lily. And the, it, it took a long time for the little oak to move there. But I got a record shot 
the exposure is not brilliant with the light, but I managed the situation and I think I've got an incredible photo of A, a rare bird and B, a bird that's the second time I've photographed it. And that would be the best photograph I've got. So there we go. That to me is nobody likes it because it's bad light and they look past all the other sort of avenues. Um, you know, it's, it's up to them. But for me, I'm very happy with what I do now. From a commercial point of view, I do have to have a mindset where I've got to take photos to sell my safaris or sell my bird talks or whatever I do. But that's not what I'm trying to do anymore. Um, you know, what you see is what you get now when you go to the bush. Unless you go to, you want to photograph karma and bee eaters nesting, you go to Calizo and you go in October, uh, September, October or November, and there's like shooting fish in a barrel. You, you can't miss. Even if it rains or you have two days thunderstorms, if you're there for three days, you're going to be in awe of what you see. So the general type of photography uh, with birding is sort of whatever makes you happy. I mean, that, that to me is key. So you spoke about that picture with the hornbills earlier, and I was really interested, you know, listening to that that side of things because I've heard a lot of photographers, and this is not just in bird photography, but in photography in general, they speak of the fact that a good photo tells a story. And I've always been challenged by that. You know, how do you, as a bird photographer, I love the way you spoke about that, where you look at the picture and there's a story attached to it. How do you move from just taking pictures where your pictures start to tell a story? Because one of the things we are talk one of the things I read on your website is the fact that you've got a passion for conservation. And I think when your story starts to tell a when your photos start to tell a story, it, there, there's something powerful about it. I think it connects people. It goes beyond just being a picture of a bird, where you know there's the bird, there's the connection to the story, and I think it's a lot more powerful. How do people move beyond just a bird to your 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 photos starting to tell a story? Well, you've got to remember, you know, a lot of the time, tell a story. Who are you telling the story to? First and foremost, for me, I'm trying to tell or, or, or in, in a digital image, show people what I saw and what I, I understood. So to tell a story, a guy needs to know a little bit about birding for a birding photograph. So if you're going to create an image that tells a story, you've got to know who your audience is going to be for what type of story you want to tell. So. If you look at that animal behavior, a lot of birds, bird, birders will, and really could appreciate that. But a guy looking at a cool bird photo, a nice carmine bee eater, the uh, nice colors and three black thugs in long grass, nobody's going to say, oh, okay, well. But a birder will appreciate that. So your target market, when I say market, I'm just talking from a business point of view, but your target audience is who you want to tell the story to. And you start developing how you tell a story, you'll then develop I'm not a following type of guy, but you'll have people that will react to your work and sort of sort of start connecting with it and appreciate it. And for me, if that happens, then I'm sharing a story. Then maybe I'll inspire that person just to go and have a look or he'll look at a TV program and he'll see hornbills or he'll see on Facebook this hornbill project that they've had recently in the Kruger and the first time ever they've recorded birds that were hand-raised, released, have now nested and had young this year. So, you know, it just forms a wider web. But again, with conservation, so many people only know conservation um, like rhinos and pangolins and elephants and whatever the case may be. But you look at birding, the huge, the biggest loss to birding um, is with poached carcasses and poisoning. So the only way you can tell a story with that 
is by having pictures like you see that people just like their heads like oh my hat there's like dead birds everywhere so that's another that, that's right to the far extreme of telling a story i think if you can find a sort of a happy medium i recently did a, a photo book for myself and one of the images that really stuck to me uh, was when I was in Kenya a few years ago. I like raptors. I have always liked them, even before I became uh, into the bird photography. And um, I'd always wanted to see a Rupel's vulture. I just thought they were the coolest looking things, nice wings, nice patterns, nice colors, you know, the whites and the and the browns and stuff, better than our drab uh, vultures we have. And um, it was a late afternoon, uh, afternoon, and if you know in sort of early summer in Kenya, you get these massive thunderstorms. And I took a photo, it was a color photo of a Rupal's vulture up on the top of a dead tree, sort of a branch. I composed it there. I love negative space. So if you want to know what that is, have a look. So if you look at a frame, you park something right on the one side. And with birds, you always leave space for them to fly across the frame. That's a very basic thing if you want to create a, a nice composition. But I put this Rupal's vulture right on the side in this dead branch. So it maybe forms 15 or 20% of the frame. And the rest was these dark, dark thunder clouds. So for me, I interpreted that as the Rupal's vulture. It's common up in Central Africa or Eastern uh, East Africa. But as you come down, a lot of loss to them with poisoning and farming and, and, and. So sort of that was the story that I told myself. And um, it's one of my favorite vulture photographs, you know, not vultures um, fighting or flying or, you know, so I, I have a theme with vultures. I see them in a dead tree. I'll shoot them in black and white and I'll use the sky or the environment to help sort of make it dark and, you know, th th those type of things. Uh, each one is specific. That's That to me is like telling a story. People uh, will relate vultures to the undertaker or, or the grim reaper or whatever it is. So you can also then change that narrative where you get white-headed vultures, which I've only ever seen four times in the Kruger in 22 years. I managed to see one last year with a, a first-year juvenile flying with them and flying in beautiful blue sky, lovely colors, sort of a young one and an adult. So there's a, a completely different look at a vulture, same as the bearded vulture, the cape vulture. You know, it's, it's looking at the species and seeing how you can portray them in a different light that will bring attention as long as somebody thinks okay what is a rupal vulture grabs the phone goes onto google and have a look normally the most uh, endangered or the, the the vultures or the subject you bring up the first search in google is going to be the ones that are threatened that's just how the how the internet works so if that connection can be made then you know i'm very happy with um you know my, my work sharing stories I, I use the telling a story very very broadly, because I think a lot of people try and tell a story a year after they've taken the photo. For me, I've got a little folder where I look at a photo and there's just something about it that personally, emotionally, there's whether it be bird, whether it be, uh, okay, I can't say I've ever had it with Impala, but uh, <laughs> normally other types of animals, there's something about that photo that just I need to put it in a folder. And then I have Make Me Think. It's called Make Me Think folder. And every couple of months, I go back into that folder. It happened recently where um, I was looking for a specific panoramic image I wanted to print. And I said, you know what? There's that there. And then I had a look at the subject and they were herons, uh, well, sorry, egrets. And there was about 19 egrets and it was a long panoramic image. 
lots of depth in the image. And then the one guy stood out like a little soldier. He stood alone amongst all of these other people. So it just gave a nice feeling. Uh, the focus is on there. So, I mean, it does come to you at some stage, but a lot of people just make up stuff as they go along for various reasons. So you've spoken about all these places that you've gone and you've got to do photography and, you know, you've obviously spoken about the fact that you like 45 um, odd minutes from Kruger. How does the planning process look like for a day out for, uh, of birding? Because you've spoken about, you know, the different habitats that you get to encounter and potential birds that you might get to see. How does that planning process look like? For now, we've um, I'm unfortunately run into a few issues because my wife's become a birding nut. So I've now lost my spare camera and my 100 to 400. I no longer see it unless I see it in the back of the car or I pack it in the bag in the morning. Um, but she also loves birding. And then my, my eldest son, well, my, my youngest son, well, he's 17. So he's got eyes like a hawk, uh, pun intended. He can see something at 400 yards, tell you the ID number, the species, and whatever else. So it's become, become that side of things. It's become more of a fun family dynamic for us. So we'll plan, okay, we're going to drive at 10 k's an hour or 5 k's an hour, and we're going to do this specific road. Because it's got a bit of woodland, there's a bit of uh, riverine there, we're going to go and look for X, Y, and Z. And because we've been fortunate this year to be in the Kruger for the first sort of good summer rains and interbirding, you know, I've, I've met a couple of guys and they share information. We've had the Black Kukul, which has been around north of Lower Sabi. It took us four days. Eventually, we found it for three days. And we had to, I managed to identify the type of environment it was in. So now that's made me realize, okay, if there's a Kukul here, there could be one down at the other area we know. So we're going to have a look there. We haven't sort of had any luck there, but our planning is now specifically around areas and species we would like to see. So unfortunately, or fortunately, we've been interrupted by wild dogs and leopards, but we've just got to the point where it's just such a fun family day. And I think that to me has done a lot more for my photography, being in a very relaxed environment now again, and not uh, only working with guests. So a lot of people that I do work with now, it's on a very casual basis, there's no expectations. You need to go out and you need to enjoy yourself. And I learn from the other people. So, you know, gauge what they know. I know they might not know Kruger, but they'll know the behavior of this bird or that bird or the call. I mean, I have no idea about bird calls. I mean, I've got to record them and look at them later or listen to them. So our planning goes specifically, let's only do three hours in the morning because that's when we're going to get good luck or two hours when the birds are active now, we've noticed, in summer. If it's very hot by 8 o'clock, there's not a bird in Kruger. They're either under a bush, in a cupboard, they are hidden away from everybody. So unless you go to Liupan, which is um, just south of Chokwan on the, um, I can't remember, it's the H11 or the H12 north of Skakuza, that is the most incredible place I've ever been in my life for birding so far for diversity. Six weeks ago, we counted 27 species of bird at the waterhole in a four-hour time. And, um, you know, just you, you don't expect things. You can sit there, elephants come along. Uh, we've had dogs come along and drink. We've had, you know, lions come. That's why they call it Yupan, lion pan. But just that sort of sitting, I've learned to actually just sit and watch the world go by. And that's just been incredible. And our, a lot of our planning now 
goes around birding. And what can we see? What are the guys seen on the group this week? Um, or, you know, some of the Trevor Hardacre's rare bird news, some guy will put some abstract bird that I doesn't even, I didn't even know existed, but I'm not going to drive 2000 kilometers to see it. If it's sort of in my wheelhouse within an hour or two, I'll go look for it. But uh, yeah, that, that's planning. It must, we plan to have fun. And then you, you have kind of touched on already, but you know, in terms of, skills that you need to apply as a bird photographer on a practical basis when you're out in the field. And you, you know, I've, I've listened to other photographers of how differently they approach it. And, and I think, you know, I've, I've always thought of this, one of my passions is atlasing. But it's almost like I've realized that sometimes it's two different approaches. If you want to photograph birds, it can sometimes be different to a day out where you just want to go out and bird. You know, how, how does that a doubt practically look for you? What, what, what kind of practices should we birders be applying or bird photographers be applying to get better photos? Listen, you know, you, 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 you take the basics of photography. So we've looked at the time, the, the time of day. The first thing you're going to look at when you go to, okay, I'm going to use Kruger as an example because there you are very restricted to your vehicle. So you've, you are restricted to the direction of the road. So if the light's in a bad place and the bird's there, you're either going to be creative and overexposed, or you're going to do something, or you're going to take the binos and you're going to have a look and go, yeah, it's a beautiful bird, and you're going to move on. You've got to be able to separate yourself. Are you going to go birding? Are you going to go and take bird photographs? Or are you going to take photographs and bird at the same time and just accept the fact that not everything you see can be photographed? But you need to be ready for that opportunity where you'll find a European roller sitting in the afternoon at five o'clock and the sun comes out. You can see the sun coming out of the clouds in the west and it is bathed in incredible light. It's got a clean background. Yes, you've seen 300 European rollers the whole day, but this one bird, this one photo makes it. You know, it's a European roller in summer. Everybody sees them, but there you have a, a, a photo based on light and composition and moment. So, you know, there you can sit and watch and enjoy it. So it's it's using those factors to create a better photo. You might not become a better photographer because that takes a lot of practice and a lot of time to, to hone your skills. But you can hone your skills anywhere. You can hone them in your garden at home. You can take a walk down to the park. So especially people that come on holiday to the Kruger, they come for two or three weeks in summer. They are birding nuts. But by 7 o'clock, it's 42 degrees with 90% humidity. Uh, you, you cannot enjoy your photography unless you're in a car and you've got a little hole through the window that your lens sticks through and your air conditioner is at minus 10. So, you know, photography there, uh, I don't know, you've got to enjoy yourself. So for me, it's you've got to find a happy medium. If you are a bird photographer and you're just going to go and take photos of birds and look for birds, you're going to miss I would say 90% of what bird photography is about because you have to be able to look at a bird and say, okay, the light's not bright here. It's got leaves. Okay, I'll do an environmental shot. Okay, it's moved. Okay, um, now, uh, but in future, if you see that bird, you would have remembered, okay, the guy moved into the thicket. It moved. Maybe he's going to come up again. And uh, the, the, um, that happened to me the whole of last year. Um, I, I can't remember the English name, but they call it a snowball. <laughs> I'll have a look on my on my Facebook page. I've got one there. It was in Kruger. You hear them a lot calling. Sorry, the name just eludes me now. And um, they always in thick, uh, dense, thick scrub or in riverine area. And um, 
We were sitting there watching a herd of elephants across the Sabi River, beautiful, taking a five-minute break, and something called and caught out the corner of my eye. And yeah, this guy was on a branch, in the open, the downside, he was upside down. He was standing, hanging on the underside. So, yeah, I took the photo. and I've got a clear photo with a clear background, but he's upside down. So, you know, I'm still going to uh, look for it, try and anticipate where, how, and what to do that. So, yeah, that, those are the type of things you need to sort of enjoy and, and, and look at in a different way. So, Snewball is a black-backed puffback. Ah, there we go. That's the one, the Snewball. I had to Google that. So, uh, yeah. So, I must say one thing about it, and, and I think some of the overseas listeners won't get this. Some of the Afrikaans' names of birds are fantastic. I mean, one of the birds we get in KZN is uh, a darkback weaver. It used to be called the forest weaver. And the Afri- the English name is that quite boring, like Yawnfest. The Afrikaans' name is Bos Misikant. Bush musician. Yeah, Bush, Bush musician. And I think it's the Afrikaans' names are so, are really fantastic. But, one of the things that there's been a lot of talk in the birding in, in the, the bird photography community is about the move from DSLR cameras to 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 mirrorless cameras. You know, you've been doing a lot of work with the Canon cameras. Um, you touched on that a little bit about some of the lenses you've been using. How has the new technology has it really made big strides in terms of how you as a uh, what you as a bird photographer have been able to do? Uh, the the first the first sort of thing is. Um, you must understand with technology, things are always going to move forward. So mirrorless has, as a system has changed and for me has made it a lot, I wouldn't say a lot easier. There's a higher probability that I will get a, a focus, uh, an image in focus of a bird in the bird in flight with simply the eye tracking features that a lot of the brands have. I am a Canon user. I have been for 30 odd years and, um, yeah, for me, the system as a whole is just incredible. Um, they've also got an 800 millimeter lens um, that I'm, I'm not sure of the retail price now, but I think it's 17 or 16,000 Rand. Where in, in, in the world in the last 20 years have you been able to get an 800 milliliter, a millimeter lens without selling a kidney and your child? I mean, so it's made it more accessible. Um, I've been able to get a lot closer in distance with the lens, seeing images, able to shoot more birds, see a lot more. And then the eye tracking has made it easier. But you've got to go back five years. And if you look at some of the people, when I started photography, there was Chris Van Royen and Albert Froneman and and those type of guys from um, a forum I used to belong to. And those guys took photos that I still cannot even imagine taking today. And they used DSLRs that were 15, 20 years old. So a lot of DSLR photography is still very possible to create good bird images. Remember, the best camera you can use is the one you have. Yes, it's going to have limitations. You need to work or develop those limitations and push them to the max no matter what you use. But it does. there there is equipment out there that does make bird photography uh, more accessible and a little bit easier if you have skill already. If you don't have a any skill, in other words, if you can't track a bird and keep it in the viewfinder, you know, no mirrorless, no auto eye focus, nothing is going to get that photo if you can't track the bird. So, you know, the, the keeper rate has improved uh, from that side of things. But, um, 
Yeah, I still have my 72, as I mentioned earlier, when I go on my own, I've got my 72 and my 100, 400 on the seat next to me. And I still take a lot of photos with it. I still enjoy, you know, the bird on a stick type thing because I get really nice depth of field with the 100, 400, the 72. I just like the camera. I've, I've, I've had mine for since 2015. Yeah, I've had it six months after it came out in 2014. So I still have it, and I actually have a second one, um, which I um, I now have with a, a slightly wider lens on it, simply that I have a wider lens when I'm in the vehicle uh, for wildlife and stuff at the same time because I've been using the Canon mirrorless system uh, now since uh, yeah, it's nearly two years now, uh, sort of July 2020 uh, with the R6 when it came out. And um, yeah, I've been doing some... I like being able to give honest feedback with equipment. So my testing is not uh, two days in the bush. Mine is now going on nearly 18 months. And the new F11 lenses, I've been pushing them for six months now. And I'm just about ready to sort of, uh, I also do blogs and some equipment reviews. But again, it's my own reviews. It's not for Canon. It's not, you know, it's my own personal opinion. Some of the stuff I really don't like when you have to, uh, in low light, you are restricted. But again, that if you understand the principles of photography, no matter what lens you use, if it's pitch black outside and you've got an, uh, a Varese eel owl next to the road and he's calling, you can hear him. You ain't going to photograph him unless you put a spotlight on him. So, so yeah, I, I'm, again, uh, I have managed to improve my bird photography with the focal lengths alone that have become available in, in the marketplace today. You know, if you look at some of the new lenses that have just been released, um, there's a 800 f 5.6 and a 1200 f8. Now we are talking long, long dollars for that type of thing. So, I mean, the 1200 something like twenty thousand um, dollars US. So, you know, again, that's a, not a market for me. I'm happy with my 800 f11, and uh, that's how I'm going to enjoy my photography. <laughs> So you gave a bit of a dirty F word there with with lenses because I know a lot of people when they when Canon first released that 800 mm lens and they said it's an F11 lens, a lot of bird photographers I spoke to said there's no way an F11 lens is going to take a good photo. What has been your experience with that with that F11 lens? You've got to look at it firstly in this respect. It's not a professional lens. It's not an L in Canon and not an L lens. I'm not sure what the other brands how they how they how they differentiate, but um, it is a lens that has its limitations. But I've shot it half an hour after sunrise until I've shot on a beanbag with the image stabilizer at one fifth of a second with a static subject, and I've got a pin sharp image. So it comes about your skill and about using it within its limits. I mean that that is a simple fact. The biggest advantage for me with F11 is I don't have to worry about depth of field anymore because it's set. I don't have to worry about the wingtips not being in focus anymore or just the head or the body. That's an advantage for me. So I'll use it a lot more during the day. And I also use it for wildlife. In the Kruger, we all know about the bun fights and the arguments and the cars at the predator side things. I stop on the other side of the road now, have my cup of coffee, and I photograph all the over the cars and the the leopards in the tree miles away from everybody else. So 
yeah, it's 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 a very very diverse lens, and yeah, look, it's permanently on on uh, on a on a body in my bag. I've been using the 600 uh, as well, the 600 f11, but for my bird photography in a place like the Kruger, where you can't, where you're limited to the roads, I think the 800 is a much better focal length. If you can go to um, other areas, like my birding areas in South Africa, I'm still new to it, so. I'm going to use uh, Zarkel uh, again as an example. You can stand on the bridge, and if the bird moves left or right, you can sort of get a little bit closer. If he's there, he's far away, you wait for him to fly towards you, or you're on the road. I mean, the road, the bushes are very close to the road, so there a 600 would be fine. But the theory behind shooting them are exactly the same, and I really enjoy it. I, you know, I've never had an issue. Um, you know, the second thing people are going to say about F11 is, you're going to get a slow shutter speed, and if you do, you've got to push your ISO up. That means your photo is going to look terrible. Uh, look, noise, I can't hear a thing. I never have worried about noise or high ISO in any of my photos. Um, I, I'm actually, it's a standing joke when anybody asks me, but why is your photo taken at ISO 6400? Why is it so low? You know, I'm normally at ISO 25,000 or 50,000 because I like getting a shot. I want to see the subject. You know, I'm not going to put my camera down and say, oh, no, my ISO is too high. I can't take that photo. So, you know, that's the other thing that in the early days when I started with my photography, people were so, so set on these technical standards that was they, they couldn't move. They weren't flexible. You know, it was you had to shoot at ISO 400 or 800. Um, and I still see a lot of that on social media when, you know, People say, oh, it's a bit soft and it's out of focus and I didn't have a fast enough shutter speed. And then the ISO is at 800. You know, any digital camera nowadays, you can push the ISO to 32 or 6400 without even stressing about it. A lot of people post photos online and they make the comment that they haven't done any editing on the image. What they are suggesting a lot of times is that, you know, if they start editing photos, it takes away from the skill of photography. Do you agree with this? No way, shape, or form. It's like you telling me that loaf of bread that just popped out the oven is perfect and you didn't have to do anything with it to get it and it just baked itself. <laughs> People need to understand digital photography, a digital file. We're not gonna, let's not confuse the skill in getting the subject, the exposure, and everything right. There is a, an innate skill to do that. But a digital file is like a bucket of Lego. The Lego is all there. You can build something. You might not use all the Lego, but the Lego is there. A digital file is full of information. And whether you use it straight out of camera, as people say, that's actually quite an embarrassing statement because they don't realize that your camera only records the information. And how it displays that information is in, aka, a raw format. But if you're using in your camera, which I teach a lot of, is their picture styles. In other words, in your camera, whatever brand you use, they'd have um, saturation, sharpness. You can adjust all of those. You can then shoot a JPEG. A lot of the images I shoot straight out of the field are JPEGs in camera, which I've used the picture style, and I post them. I've just got to that stage where I like to be out in the field. And unless I'm doing a book or unless I'm doing uh, fine art prints where I need to spend a little bit of time and actually... Uh, create something that I've envisioned from a digital file. Again, people get confused with the word editing and the word developing. 
When you take a file of a bird that you've taken and you add a bit of saturation and you add a bit of contrast and a bit of sharpness, bingo, that's developing your image like taking it to a lab. It's a debate we can get into the same as Ansel Adams, how he used to, I promise you, he would spend a couple of hours in the dark room dodging and burning and double exposure. He went bananas with his work. Um, and that would be classed as photoshopping your images nowadays, but people look as a true photographer. But um, yeah, you have to edit a photo or develop it in some way, shape or form. Yes, you can manipulate it and make a carmine be to look like a, um, a pink rose flying through the air with a black background or something silly. But again, that's where the art side of it comes into, not photography. For This is my, my opinion. Uh, I have sort of strong opinion when it comes to um, editing their photos. I see so many po people that have got the most incredible photo of a bird uh, or an animal like an elephant or a leopard and they just say, oh, straight out of camera. They could have spent 10 seconds and they could have just tweaked, tweaked it up. And the same goes when you take your photo out of your camera. You can't just put it onto um, Facebook or a website. You can't put 20 megabyte file onto a website. You need to make it smaller. And when you make that smaller, you are losing detail. So you have to put back. So you have to sharpen it. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's a process people think is um, witchcraft. And sometimes they sort of think, okay, that's fine. And my message is to anybody, there's software out there that you can use that is free. You're not redesigning the wheel. You just are developing or slightly enhancing the information that is there. So speaking about the software, most bird photographers either use Lightroom or Photoshop. But I've got into your YouTube channel and I've seen that you've done tutorials on Photoscape and also on the Canon Digital Photo Professional software. And these, as far as I can see, are both free software. Here's the question. Are these a viable alternative to Lightroom and Photoshop? And what, what are the differences that there is between, the, between these programs? Okay, so look, if you are somebody who's very serious about your photography and wants to optimize the use of your digital files and you might want to sell prints or you want to do a book or you are working for a media house or anything like that, you have to go with a software package that is going to give you or take your file and give you the most out of your file. So Lightroom and Photoshop are those packages. Photoscape is something I came across looking for uh, software for a group of journalists I was working with who want to post images on Instagram. They want to do post images. There was a phase there a couple of months ago on Instagram where you get, you slide a photo three times and then you get the whole photo. It was in um, slices. And, you know, they didn't know how to use Lightroom. They didn't know how to use Photoshop. So I came across Photoscape and I, I realized, damn, this is an incredible the free version is incredible. It comes for Windows and Mac, and you can do so much. It has very basic functions, saturation, sharpness. You can put borders around your images. You can put cartoons, voice. You can go to town with it. It's, it's, it's a fun software. Can it develop an image for you from raw? Yes. Can it give you a good quality image to put on a website? For sure. Again, I think it's a lot of the mainstream media that you're not a photographer unless you shoot in manual or you use Lightroom or you use Photoshop. I just try and encourage people to work within their boundaries. Understand that if you go and you buy Lightroom today, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, what now? You're not even going to know where to turn it on. No matter what tutorial you watch, 
But when you go to Photoscape X, you can open it, you click on it, got a little tutorial, you can watch it and off you go. Within 15 or 20 minutes, you'll be able to edit a photo and export it in the right size for, for Facebook, for a website. That's one of the tutorials I have there, show you how quick and easy it is just by following simple prompts to edit your photo. And Canon's Digital Photo Professional um, is also free. It only works with Canon digital files, and it's a raw converter. This is where the difference comes in with DPP versus Photoscape or DPP versus Lightroom. It only is a converter, so you are very limited to what you can do. So you can do the basic color corrections, you can do lens corrections. Everything that the Canon factory could give you, they give you the best, from the technical settings of your lenses to sharpening to noise reduction. Um, you don't have to believe me. You can go watch the YouTube channel. I show you exactly the difference in image quality you can get from Canon's free software by developing your RAW or converting your RAW and then putting it in a third party like Lightroom. I use Lightroom. I used to use it extensively for everything. I now have, I would say, of my work images that I want to use for books or prints or everything, I would say it's a 75-25 split, 75 for Digital Photo Professional and then Lightroom or Photoshop just because the quality I'm getting is, for me, more important than letting... Uh, look, it's a long technical explanation as to why it differs, but you know, for, for anybody who's just taking uh, photos to make a few canvas prints or uh, put on social media, you, you're not really going to notice the difference, but you'll understand when you see the videos, there is a marked difference. And that's, you know, for free software, people must have the confidence to go out, they can shoot JPEG and RAW with their Canon for argument's sake or any other brand um, that might have free software as a RAW converter. It's a great stepping stone. You're going to enjoy your photography by just not putting too much emphasis on the bigger editing packages um, and just working with basic Basic, basic stuff. And are there any other programs that you'd recommend for bird photographers? Um, I'm sure. You know, I've worked with so many. Um, there's, uh, there's Darktable. There's GIMP. There's so many other. Um, there's Breeze Browser. There's ACDC. I could never sort of get comfortable using them. I'm a very simple guy. Once I've done something once and I know it works, I don't deviate. So if I've got something for Facebook, I'll have the same setting for 90% of the photos quickly pop them out. Um, but I've just found that Photoscape X is something that everybody can use. A lot of my students that have no knowledge, within an hour or two, are starting to, okay, I can crop my image. Oh, I can add some, oh, make it nice and sharp, resize it for the web. Um, I think, you know, the less is more. So if you've got something you use and you're comfortable with it and you're happy with it, stick with it. But a lot of the time for me, I was very, very focused on Lightroom. And only in the last sort of 18 months when um, lockdown came that I started seeing a lot more stuff online. And uh, recently I found a software package for noise reduction and sharpening, which I think it's witchcraft. I, I, I'm, I'm at the moment still trying to get my head around the results you can get of an image of ISO 100,000 that you can get. And um, I'm actually planning to do a, a tutorial on that and uh, a couple of ideas. But there are advancements you can use. And that for me now is because I'm using the F11 lens. I'm pushing the ISO slightly higher. 
uh, higher than I would get a better result with my Canon software. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of trade-off, but there's also a lot of solutions in the uh, equipment-wise if you at that serious level. So we've said a lot as we've had as we've gone through this podcast, but here's the big question at the end: Good bird photography is it equipment, talent, skill, or just good luck? I think uh, Gary Player sums it up. The more you practice, the luckier you get. But you need to have a good set of clubs and a good ball to play the game with. <laughs> no, look, um, you can. You know, people get lucky. They go out with a, a nice, decent set, and somebody tells them, "Put it on this, do that, just track the bird," and they can naturally do it. But you have to do your homework and you have to practice. Equipment is going to make it easier. Again. If you are photographing a black cuckoo and he stays at 100 meters away from you for the three hours you're sitting watching him and you drive away and then another guy you see an hour later has got a picture taken with a 70-200 mil lens and you're sitting next to the road in a tree, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of luck has got to do with it as well. But you can increase your chances with better knowledge, better equipment. So, yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons to both. But a passion is going to make you a better photographer uh, above everything else. If you have a passion and a desire to enjoy yourself and focus on creating images which make you happy, I think that's a key, a huge key to going forward. So, Andrew, it's been fantastic to chat to you. But here's the uh, last question is how can people get in touch with you for photographic courses or for I'm doing birding tours or bird photography tours. Let's say that bird photography tours. Yeah, I'm not a bird guide. I'm a bird photographer. Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm based mostly here in the low felt. Um, I do travel, to, as I said, to Botswana, you know, a couple of places, Namibia. But you can get hold of me on, on, on Facebook. My Facebook page is the main place to do that. Um, my Facebook profile is a little bit of a personal uh, area. Um, you know, and if I don't know, we don't have friends in common. I don't sort of, you know, get involved. But the Facebook page, uh, it's Andrew Averly Photography, and it's Andrew, and my surname is A V E L E Y. And um, yeah, my website also AndrewAverly.co.za or .com. And um, yeah, um, if they're interested, there is a, a link there. You can sign up for a a non-spam, non-marketing only web email that I do. Um, I go through phases of blogging as well, which you can sign up for on my website. Uh, other than that, um, yeah, we've got a specific tour company my wife runs, Wild Expressions Photo Tours and Safaris. Um, and we not only do safaris that I guide, um, we work with a couple of really great bird guides and we plan the trip. So we do the booking and everything like that. So, um, you know, it's using our knowledge uh, you can go as a photographer, you can go on an unguided safari if you want to um, without having to pay the fees of a guide if you're an accomplished photographer. So that's the direction we're moving in this year. So the, for those that are listening on the podcast app, I will put the notes, put the links into the show notes. But Andrew, it's been fantastic to chat to you. I know there's so much more we could have spoken about, but it's been so cool to chat. And I know we've got some stuff in the future we've got planned. So this won't be the last time you'll hear from Andrew, but it's been great to chat to you. And yeah, looking forward to the next chat. Yes, thank you very much. And um, any of your listeners that have any questions on photography, maybe they can hit you up and we can chat about it to answer anything photographically. I'm not, uh, look, I'm a Canon user, I'm a Canon nut, um, but I'm very au fait with um, most of the other brands. But bird photography, you know, throughout the, the types of cameras that you use and brands is very much the same. So I love sharing 
I also love learning. Maybe you've got something useful you can share with me. Uh, by all means, uh, uh, please, you know, hit me up. Tell me. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from anybody. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.